0: Everybody gets a piece, we're going In the latest episode of Outgoes Mainstream, we have one of the pioneers of the online investment space. Today's guest is Ben Miller, the co-founder and CEO of Fundrise, one of America's largest direct-to-investor alternatives investment managers. Ben has tremendous experience and expertise in both the real estate space and in building innovative alternative investment technology solutions. Prior to founding Fundrise, Ben was a managing partner of Westmill Capital Partners and president of Western Development Corporation where he was responsible for acquiring, developing, and financing more than $500 million worth of property. In Fundrise, Ben has built a company whose aim is to use technology to build a better financial system for the individual investor, which is simpler, lower cost, more reliable, and transparent. They've built software that enables the company to develop and manage investments uniquely well-positioned to grow and preserve their client's capital in any economic environment. Since launching America's first online real estate investment platform in 2012, Fundrise has now become one of the largest direct-to-investor alternative investment managers, with more than 1.6 million active users, more than $3.3 billion of equity under management, and $7 billion of real estate transacted. From private credit to real estate private equity to growth stage venture capital, Fundrise offers investors exposure to various asset classes. Ben and I had a fascinating conversation about Fundrise's evolution from real estate to a broad-based alternatives investment manager and how they got there. We discuss the evolution of the real estate market and the importance of technology in building a more efficient and low-cost way for investors to access alternatives and how Fundrise has focused on this to grow their platform. Thanks, Ben, for coming on the AGM podcast to share your views. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Pleasure to have you on. Fascinating perspectives on both the real estate and the tech world. You straddle both of these worlds. As you think about the evolution of real estate as an asset class and what people could invest in and how, how do you think about that arc of transformation when it comes to how people invested in real estate, who was investing in real estate, and where are we today? Oh, I love that question. I take a much longer
1: view than most people because my father was in real estate. I often think back to the 1960s or 70s. The real estate industry really changed in around 87, 1989. Before that period, there were very few institutions. It was mostly syndicators, accountants, law firms that raised money. There was a different tax consequence in real estate before change in the tax treatment under Reagan. Real estate entered a new phase in the early 90s and became institutionalized. The institutionalization of real estate was a 30-year trend. Blackstone, Goldman Sachs, Whitehall, Starwood, and everybody you'd ever heard of was birthed in that period. The industry transformed, and the institutional allocation to real estate and to alternatives comes out of that era. The institutional allocation to alternatives became saturated. At the end of the last decade, the next revolution is opening that up to more people, the individuals, high net worth investors, RAAs, opening it up and doing it in a way that's basically low cost, bringing technology to bear. The next phase is a technological revolution in alternatives. And
0: with technology, it lowers barriers. What about the real estate space makes it ripe for technological innovation? The way I think about it is that
1: everything is ripe for technological innovation. Anything that has been a laggard, where there's less technology, there's probably a lot more opportunity. If you think about media, there's a ton of technology. If you think about real estate, there's so little. It's basically trapped in the 1990s. It's not database-driven. I think that the application of technology to any sector is the future, and we're doing that, and real estate being a multi-trillion dollar area, it's fertile with opportunity.
0: So there's an interesting question embedded in all of this is that real estate is being impacted by technology, which is great because that's opening up access. But I've always thought of real estate as a fascinating part of the alts world because it's one of the categories where individuals have actually had access to real estate, unlike private equity or venture for the most part and could do it themselves. Maybe you could argue that's not the best way to do it, but you mentioned people used to syndicate investments into real estate. People can get started with maybe smaller homes, investing in refurb and flip, things like that. Does the advent of technology in real estate change the way that people should be investing in real estate? And how do you think about that? maybe they should just be allocating to a fund instead of trying to invest in properties themselves, refurbish them and flip them and try to build a little real estate portfolio themselves. There's a lot of embedded questions in that. So let me try to parse it. On the last question,
1: it depends on the effort you want to undertake. If you want to do it yourself or you are an operator, which lots of high net worth investors in the country are, that's a different proposition. Um, The good news is you might be able to achieve high returns with less fees because you're not paying outside parties. The negative side of it is it's a lot of work and it's probably highly concentrated geographically or by asset class. The goal of technology is the lower cost. The financial industry, the real estate industry, broadly, the entire private market, it structured itself, the fee structure and the way they think about returns based on a period in the early 90s. I remember when I joined real estate, they were like, there's this new thing called an LLC. (laughs) Before the LLC, it was a partnership. And that was an innovation. The two and 20 fee structure, 2% annual asset management fee and 20% of the profits was birthed in that period. The way that the value chain of real estate worked was a fund would raise money from lots of institutions. And that's a lot of work. They aggregate the dollars and they turn around and they invest it with operators, with sponsors. And the sponsor might be like Larry Silverstein who built the World Trade Center, or Steve Ross who's built Hudson Yards. That operator, sponsor would get 2 and 20 also. Maybe the operator didn't get two because it's a little bit different fee structure, but it's all in 40 to 50 percent paid to the operator and the fund. And then some fees. So if you think about the total return, nearly half of the total return is paid to the value chain, not to the investor. That's the opportunity to use technology to compress that, to eliminate the people, because people have to get paid, and replace that with software which doesn't need to get paid or is nearly
0: free. On that point, has cost- when it comes to the current structure of pooled vehicles in real estate really been a prohibitive factor for many people investing in real estate?
1: No, that hasn't been the primary barrier. The barrier is non-technological. It's people don't know about it. People can't get access to it. Oh, if I could get access to Blackstone Fund or access to a Renaissance Fund, like that'd be incredible. So you're selling and buying access, not so much selling and buying returns. Returns are sort of implicit to that. So in your mind, how does this change the real estate space? The value chain of real estate was designed in the early 90s when real estate was inefficient. I started my career working for a real estate private equity fund in 1997 called Lubert Adler. You had to fly to the property, spend weeks walking around talking to people, who's a good operator, take a minute to download a picture. The work and the value that the fund did was really material. But now, knowing who's a good sponsor in Portland, you can literally Google that. The information asymmetry that's critical to alpha is basically gone. Everybody has all the same information. It's called CoStar. You might see a fund talk about raising money, and what do they say they buy? They buy off-market deals. Guess what, there's no such thing. It's a myth, it's a story. One in 100 deals is off-market. And even if it's off-market, it's probably priced by the market. The market's efficient. So it's very, very rare to get materially different price because that's just not how the market works anymore. It's efficient. Any real quality asset will go to a broker. There'll be an auction. The auction will have lots of bidders, 10, 20. It's like a stock market. No one says the stock market's inefficient. But in the 1990s, there were so many off-market deals The market wasn't efficient. The government was selling assets through the Resolution Trust Corporation. The background context is that the alpha
0: and the fees paid for the alpha is no longer consistent with reality. So how should investors then think about this? There's now new ways for many people to access real estate. There's both from an informational perspective and an investment access perspective that seems to both hold true. Now, If you're someone with tens of thousands to millions of dollars to invest, people can do it themselves, buy properties, hold it, then sell it. They could invest in funds. They could invest whether or not they have access. And that's a core question. What are the different ways in which people can and should invest in real estate and why give them this option through a platform like Fundrise, which may be more passive, but there may be benefits to that as well?
1: So, if you triage the decision, you first ask, Am I going to be an active or passive investor? If you're an active investor, then that takes you down one path. If you're a passive investor, then you have to decide, Am I going to be picking deals or really strategies? The fund is a proxy for a strategy. The strategy might be, I'm going to buy office buildings or I'm going to buy a residential in Austin. I believe strategy is where the value is. There's not really alpha in the deal. Is alpha in the strategy. As an analogy, any office deal you did in the last five years, you lost money, I mean, by and large, because the strategy collapsed because of the work from home. And that's true for the retail. On the other hand, industrial, residential, we own 20,000 residential units across the country. I think we've owned 37,000 units over the last 10 years. You look back, you say, which deal was better And this is where the technology comes in. You backtest with data. What things were predictive? What underwriting did you do? Every pro forma I've ever seen has been wrong. You never see a pro forma that's predictive. So you say, okay, what's happening here? And you look back at the data and you find that strategy matters, like the asset class, office, or industrial, and the geography matters. Orlando, not Buffalo. But the specific building inside that strategy is only maybe 10 or 20% of the return, and 80, 90% of the return was the asset
0: class and the geography. So on this point related to technology innovation, certainly you've innovated on the distribution side or access side. People can now get access at scale because of lowering the cost. On the data side, you mentioned you have 37,000 units over the last 10 years. How can you leverage technology to make better decisions on either investments in the future or strategies in the future, as well as which properties may perform better or worse? I have to understand the baseline of the real estate industry. The normal real estate company
1: has all that data sitting in Excel spreadsheets, and it's useless. The infrastructure that you would need to actually be able to answer those questions doesn't exist. It just doesn't exist in the whole industry, except for Fundrise.
0: (laughs) So on that point, now every company in the world is a technology company in some way, shape, or form. I have to imagine the incumbents are trying to figure out how to apply technology to their business to do some of these things. Why are they not able to do what you just said? Where there's a will, there's a
1: way, but it's not really what matters to real estate people. What matters is deal flow, deals, capital, financing, and then more deals, more capital, more financing. It just doesn't, in the short-term matter, it's not a short-term benefit. That's one thing. Second is that, so Fundrise, we're 300 team members, 150 of us are software engineers and product, maybe 200 tech people. How many real estate organizations are 65% tech? Not many. That is a capability and a culture and a mindset that just you end up thinking about solutions
0: and recognizing patterns in a different way. We've talked about this point in the past that technology doesn't necessarily matter to the consumer, the back end and how it's done. They just want it delivered well. How do you think about the application of technology to a business like Fundrise? You mentioned you have a very large tech team. How much of that is just building the back end so that consumers have a great experience but don't necessarily know? Or are there other parts of the value chain that you're leveraging using technology to make the real estate investment process across the life cycle even better?
1: The goal that people may not see is that you wanna automate the entire value chain. So from the property all the way to the end investor wants to be all software. Is that possible? Yeah, we're almost there. No one sees that's what we're doing, but that's why we have so many software engineers. And so what is that and why? If you can do that, you can lower the cost. If you can get into the exact same real estate at the same price because it's an auction, eliminate half the cost. It's a fundamentally
0: better product than what exists in the world. When you say it's a fundamentally better product, people will choose investing in a Fundrise investment opportunity instead of... Any other way they can access real estate market? That's the first order consequences.
1: Let's say you used to like build for rent, single family rental, which is something we do. And we're vertically integrated, by the way. We own the process from the property all the way to the investor. Not many real estate companies are vertically integrated.
0: Blackstone's vertically integrated, but most are not. Just to put a pin in that point, what's the decision and why... Would you want to be vertically integrated versus not? We couldn't
1: automate the whole value chain until we controlled the whole value chain. So it was about control of our destiny. Also, there were certain strategies we wanted to do. Like when we launched Build for Rent three or four years ago, it didn't exist. There weren't anybody to invest in. So we just had to do it ourselves. But it's mostly about being able to apply technology. If you have a real estate partner, and I come from real estate, I've had tons of partners you cannot get them to use technology. That's not gonna happen in the way that a technology person would want. So it makes it hard to drive change in the sector if your customer doesn't want to change. And this is one of the things I've learned as an entrepreneur and a company executive is that turnarounds or changing a company, changing a department is very difficult. So difficult, I basically say, don't do it. You just start from scratch. So you have a team that's doing something, whatever, accounting, just start a new team because the old team's not going to be able to change.
0: How much harder was it to start Fundrise given that from the beginning, the goal was to own the entire value chain? Well,
1: <laughs> that wasn't my original goal. I started by wanting to democratize investing in real estate because I thought it was a great asset class. I started after the great financial crisis. We started at one end of the value chain, And like a caterpillar sort of chomped our way through the value chain. We just said, well, we need to eat
0: the whole thing because it's like electricity. It doesn't flow if there's a break in the chain. What was the point at which you realized that we need to actually create something that solves the entire value chain and then we need to own all of it? It's funny. It was
1: more like the opposite. I was like, this is so frustrating with the real estate partners, all the people. They're not creating value. If you are a real estate fund and you manage real estate sponsors... You know, sometimes you're like, I don't know if this person's a value creator or value destroyer. We have exceptional partners and we've had difficult partners. And so it was more like, oh, I have this problem. The way I feel about technology is you start with a problem. The problem was, in this case, we couldn't operate the properties as efficiently with excellence we wanted because they were intermediating it for us. So that was why we did it. And as we did it, we brought our mindset, which is we're sitting in the room with software engineers. I've built tons of software products now as a product manager. So when we got to the work, we realized that the work could be transformed with software. So it wasn't like I knew the answer beforehand. We got dropped into a situation and realized that there was an answer available to us that other people hadn't maybe seen.
0: How have you extended that perspective beyond the world of real estate. And the context for that question is you started with real estate, but then more recently, you've launched an innovation fund that's focused on the technology venture world. What has made you decide to go from real estate to tech and how has technology been at the core of that? We democratize investing into real estate and then built
1: and are building a technology infrastructure that transforms that. Think about it. Real estate is like a single value chain. So why start to expand to other value chains like the private market of tech investing? We have 385,000 investors. Some are multimillionaires, and some are normal investors. We felt like they wanted more from us, more than just real estate. So we've been thinking about expanding to other alternatives. As an entrepreneur who's Worked in tech with software engineers and product engineers, and I've had my fair share of interaction with venture capital. I looked at that world and I said, this world has a lot of the same flaws as the private real estate world. What are those flaws? If there's a problem, there's an opportunity. I looked at the problems and I said, well, there's a lot of carried interest, a lot of fees. I looked at venture industry in 2021 and I was like, this thing's messed up. (laughs) This industry is all messed up. We're not smarter than the venture industry. We don't have more information, more knowledge asymmetry. We're just different. And the differences are the advantages. I looked at how venture is structured, which is also how real estate private equity is structured. They're structured as a fund with a GP. The fund is a closed-ended fund with expectations, seven to 10 years to make the investments and return the money. With a 20% carried interest, ongoing approximately 2% fees, I have a belief that incentives, by and large, dictate behavior. The incentives of the venture industry became about raising funds. Literally, you close the first fund, and within a short amount of time, they're thinking about raising the next fund. So it's like a fund series, And over time, it became an asset gathering business. If I think about Andreessen Hurwitz or somebody, $30 billion. The reality is this is like what I think about real estate. At that scale, you're an index of a sector. So I just think that the same types of flaws exist in that space. So we built something that's different. If we take no carried interest on our real estate, there's no carried interest at the real estate operating level. There's no carried interest at the fund level, zero carried interest. So we launched a venture fund that's zero carried interest as well. It's an evergreen fund, so it's perpetual capital. I'm not going to go raise the next fund, the next fund, and chase that in that way. As an entrepreneur, I think about what kind of partner, what kind of capital should I want? How do I have the best outcomes? I have partners and money that's aligned with those best outcomes. And that means long-term, not short-term, at least for when you're building a generational business. If they make their money by selling, which is what the carry insurance incentivizes, the day after they invest in you, and also everything they do beforehand, is about the exit. They're thinking about the exit the entire time, which is not that productive. <laughs> so we have no carried interest. It's evergreen fund. It's low fee. Most venture companies are not technologists. Some of them are software engineers, but not that many. Most of the industry has been institutionalized. And they're former investment bankers, former management consultants. We have hundreds of software engineers. Like when we look at investing in a company, we're literally using the software. We have engineers being like, okay, here's this company. Is DBT Labs better than uh, using DBT open source? And why and how would Amazon consume them? It's a very different kind of investment analysis than spreadsheet-driven analysis, the way I think a
0: lot of growth equity investors make decisions. How much of the decision to move into venture investing and create a product for your community of almost 400,000 investors, how much of that was driven by investor demand of wanting certain products? Or how much of this was driven by the belief that at Fundrise, we want to build a comprehensive alts platform? The latter. I thought that one
1: plus one could equal 11 and that the more we understand technology, the more we're invested in it, the more technology is integral to how we operate, what we think about, what we own, the better real estate investor we'd be. We have a lot of investors who said, I don't like that you guys are leaving your focus area, you're, sort of, you're, you're getting distracted. My explanation is that if you look at real estate over the last 20 plus years, what has been the most important thing in real estate? It's Technology. Every asset class, one by one, has been completely disrupted, and the value of retail got destroyed by technology. The value of office is currently being destroyed by technology. Hotels, Expedia, and the way that they commoditize the hotel business is because of technology. The biggest mistake the real estate industry has made in the last 25 years is that technology is not a core competency. And so I think of technology investing in companies using technology companies, building technology. It's all one and the same.
0: So where to from here then? You've done real estate, you've done technology. How do you think about technology as the core underpinning of a platform that can maybe do much more than this? Is there more opportunity? We have three investment strategies. We
1: have real estate, we have tech, and we also have credit. And credit is mostly real estate, mostly asset-backed, credit. Somebody said, what's the greatest opportunity investment today? I would say credit. Distressed, opportunistic credit. We have half a billion dollars vested into it where we have hundreds of millions basically planned to invest into it. And there's sort of an unfair return because there's a liquidity shortage in real estate and also every other asset class. And if you have liquidity, you could basically get double digit yields for credit-like risk. We're just going all in there that's tactical because that's a moment in time that won't exist a year from now or two years from now.
0: How do you think about being a distribution platform that serves the needs of investors and what they want or are interested in versus being an allocator of capital, creating strategies, and then educating investors on why they should be investing in the strategies that you believe will work? I come from, I'm an investor and a
1: builder, not in the asset management world. I was talking to a guy who used to work for AQR which is a big fund manager. He asked me what we were going to invest in. I was like, I don't know. I have to think about what's good. He's like, that's such a funny question because the way that the asset management industry works is they launch a bunch of funds and whatever sells is what they scale. And I was like, well, what if it's not good? (laughs) He's like, what do you mean? It's not even relevant. In 2021, everybody wanted to invest in really high risk investments. They wanted to invest in crypto, whatever. And we basically said, no, we're not going to do that. Our credit fund was heavy into cash. We had hundreds of millions of dollars of undeployed cash. Our yield fell to four percent. Investors were like, I don't understand why is your yield so low. I'm like, You'll thank us later. If you're impatient, you should get out. We start with what we think is right. We have conviction. That's our values.
0: What do you think investors can learn, or what do you learn from being so heavily invested in real estate, and how does that inform? how you think about risk, how you think about other markets that you're investing in. Yeah, it's so funny.
1: Because I would say how I think about tech informs how I think about everything else. And real estate is an operating business, just like tech companies An operating business. People think of it as a building because they've never run a property before. Real estate industry is funny because it has a $100 million building and they'll pay somebody $30,000 to be a property manager running it. (laughs) What I learned from real estate, because I've been in real estate for 23, four years, is that the macro is the most important thing. The micro is critical, but if the macro goes against you, if you don't have the big picture
0: right, all the small things get wiped out by the big things. No matter whether or not you get the fundamentals right in a particular market, particular strategy. If the macro is against your favor, you're still going to lose. Walk us through the thought process of how that's been put into action when you think about investing in real estate and now that you're investing in tech with tech as well. Thought process I use, and we
1: call it an operating principle inside the company. We have different operating principles. One of them is you have to think about something from the bottom up and then also think about it from the top down. That can be for a project, can be for a strategy. What often happens are specialists will get trapped thinking about things from the bottom up, and generalists will not know how to think about things from the bottom up. and only think about things from the top down. You have to be able to do both. We've been heavily invested in the Sunbelt multifamily for the last seven, eight years. You can look at that top down and say, okay, there's just huge demographic drivers. Real estate is largely a levered investment on GDP in a specific geography. Not national GDP, but what's the GDP growth, if you think about it, as country, region, city, neighborhood. You can have a neighborhood that's exploding in a city that has much higher GDP growth than you can have in another neighborhood at a high level. 80% of the population growth last year was in four states. The United States had 1.3 million increase in population July 2021 to July 2022, and one million of that was in Florida, Texas, North Carolina, and South Carolina. So when people talk about real estate, don't talk to me about real estate, talk to me about geography. And then inside those four states, 80% of that growth was in eight cities, Tampa, Orlando, Dallas. And then inside those cities, there's certain parts of the city that had more growth. And so again, i say the strategy is driven by these top-down is not the deal. You have to get the right asset class, the right geography. And then when you get to the deal, yeah, the operations are critical. But most investors aren't doing any
0: operations. (laughs) If investors share that mental model that you have, as much inventory as there may be across the country or world, if what you say holds true, then are you seeing a world where there's a lot of capital competing for a very small number of deals and therefore... Generally, when that happens, returns go down? Yes, but there's a liquidity crisis. There's
1: actually not a lot of capital. Now you say, was there a lot of capital last year? And was, in retrospect, was there too much capital chasing that much growth? I think that there's a general cognitive bias that investors frequently make, a mistake. And this is an analytical mistake over an intuitive conclusion. And that is winners win more than you expect, and losers lose more than you expect. The virtuous cycle of winning is so powerful. It's hard to actually get your mind around. That's why some of these tech companies are unbelievable. They just compound their growth. And it's absolutely true with a place. So if you're in a city, Austin, people are moving there and new things are opening and that's driving more growth and then more companies move there and it gets more vibrant. We saw that happen with the big blue cities. It's invest in huge big blue cities from 1999 to 2000. 17. And then we exited it. We said, this big blue city story is over. It's overpriced. So yeah, at some point the price can get too high. The Sunbelt's still a quarter of the price of the big blue cities. So there's a long way to run before that price gap closes. And that's not including the massive growth. If at some points it's just as expensive to live in Tampa as to live in New York City, the population is not going to
0: move there. So as you think about the macro environment you think about where we're headed, new interest rate regime, inflation. What's most interesting in real estate? What markets will be hit hardest? So how do we behave differently?
1: There's structure, incentives, and judgment. On the structure, incentives, we don't take a carry interest on our funds. So it makes us less incentivized to take risk. In real estate, the way you lose money, first and foremost, is with leverage, with debt. Our average leverage across our platform is like 41%, 40%. The average leverage for most private real estate companies is 65%, 75 80%. The way you lose money in a cycle is basically not having enough liquidity when things go bad. And that problem is an opportunity for someone with liquidity. So there's a dichotomy in the world today. You can play that any which way you want. You can play it as credit, which I think is appropriate now. And, and then six months from now or 12 months from now, prices reset and you can play it as a buyer of equity of the building or of the stock. But in this part of the cycle, credit's way more attractive. Prices haven't really fully
0: captured the new reality. And do you think that in a market like this maybe it gets more challenging that more people will look to invest into platforms or products like Fundrise or other products out there. There's institutional products. Blackstone has one. There's a lot of different real estate investment funds. Will people move more to platforms than either try to do things themselves or invest in real estate in other ways? What I actually think will happen
1: as part of the cycle is most people will do nothing. There's a period of uncertainty. And when you're in a period of uncertainty, most people are paralyzed and they will not act because institutionally, most people are punished for acting, not for not acting. I think there's going to be a period of paralysis that exists in the market for 6 to 12 months. That's the period I'm most excited about because it will, we will be active. We're so different than the old legacy players like Blackstone and Apollo. And that difference, it takes a while for you to build up credibility. And, and, and I think it's going to take a while for people to realize that technology and sort of modern approach is better We have a
0: lot of investors, but we're still a really small player in the world. (laughs) You just said that you're different from the Blackstones and Apollos. We have a lot of people who listen who are familiar with the Blackstones, Apollos. What makes you different?
1: I actually think Blackstone is very different than Apollo and et cetera. So I'll pick Apollo. We don't take a carried interest, not at the real estate level, not at the fund level. And you're probably playing two carried interest, double carried interest if you're investing in a private fund. So that's a huge difference. The most powerful thing is incentives in the world. And so our incentives are different. Our technology is radically different. Our team composition is radically different. Our mentality is radically different. So, what does that mean? If I look at our performance last year, it means that we had more stability because we had less leverage. So the highs may not be as high, but the lows shouldn't be as low. We always say we're the tortoise, not the hare or the caterpillar. My father would always say the caterpillar versus the butterfly. So we're just chomping away over here. And people who are contrarian, skeptical, independent thinkers are attracted to us. People who are institutional and sort of traditional are more wary. Do you think that's a good thing in a period like this? That may be very challenging, being wary. Always good to be skeptical. When I'm engaging with an investor, I'm great with a skeptic and horrible with an optimist.
0: (laughs) I just don't even know how to relate to people who are glandularly optimistic. On that point, much of innovation revolves around optimism. You're building something in an older line industry, and you are bringing an optimistic outlook to it. How do you balance both skepticism and optimism? I think you can
1: be a skeptical optimist, and it goes generally to this idea of of, you have to be and, not or. Or there's a quote by F. Scott Fitzgerald, which is that A first rate intelligence can hold two opposing thoughts in their mind at the same time and still function. And so being skeptical and optimistic isn't tension, but I think the right way to operate. When we think about our innovation fund, our tech strategy, we're trying to focus on the mid-stage, not seed, series D, pre-IPO, sort of mid-stage. And at mid-stage, there is data. So we're focused on data infrastructure. That's our first subsector data infrastructure. We know who the top 20 data infrastructure companies are. Everybody knows. There's not a, a information asymmetry. And our job, our goal is to basically index into all of them. We're not saying we're smarter. We're not saying we think DBT Labs is going to beat Prefect. We just say there's a map and we're going to try to come into it and we're going to let the market set the price because I think the market always sets the price in any venture deal. In every deal of consequence, the market sets the price, and the market's well-priced today compared to 2021. So it's a different framework than the venture person who basically runs around essentially having to justify alpha. In a way, we say, we're going to deliver you beta. We're going to deliver you new type access to a new type of beta at a low cost, whether that's venture or it's real estate credit or it's real estate equities. It's just a different mentality because we aren't in the business of selling investments. Our investments are bought, not sold. It's all through digital technology. We have no salespeople. Our behavior is different because we're structured differently. On that point, where next for Fundrise? (laughs) We have a lot going on. It's so fun. We have a whole software initiative to eat the value chain of real estate. The software is called Basis. We're launching into tech, and we go slow. We go super slow. Time is the most valuable thing. If you get hot money, you don't have time. I'd much rather choose time over money. That's why we're the tortoise. We're going into tech, we're going into a deeper real estate infrastructure, and then we're expanding who can invest into it. I'm talking to institutions and started talking to RIAs because we have an infrastructure that I think is applicable to more kinds of investors. So It's changing the who, which I hadn't focused on before. If you are a technology person, you understand what I'm going to say here, which is to have great technology it has to be standardized. Amazon software works because it's the same user experience, same sort of software. The financial world, the real estate world, the venture world, everything is customized. Everything is different. You can't use technology if everything's different. We are building a standardized process, and the standardized process is better for some things, not for everything. And we're going to say, if you're a big investor or RIA, a wealth manager, we're going to give you a better standardized product, and we're not going to customize to you because that's not going to give you what you want in the long term. That wasn't going to work until we had proven we have scale, we have track record, 10 years, we have... 20,000 residential units, almost half a million investors. I think we have the substance now to slowly but surely get people to adopt what we think is
0: the future end-to-end solution. It's fascinating to hear the evolution of Fundrise over the years where you started. And we're quite innovative. You were one of the first. We were definitely first. You were the first <laughs> to crowdfund effectively. and Maybe crowdfund is no longer the right term because I think the market has evolved beyond the term crowdfunding but crowdfund capital into real estate and now you're moving into tech. It's really exciting to see. What I always love to end this podcast with is by asking every investor or founder the same question, which is, what is your favorite or most interesting alternative investment? Such a great question. Hold on, let me just say this one thing before I get to that. We are
1: not real estate crowdfunding, but we were. We invented real estate crowdfunding and then we decided it wasn't the right model. And we moved to a fund model, diversified strategies. You invest in strategies, not deals. And we left it in 2015. And that's an example of you innovate, you learn, and then you iterate and you learn again and you grow. Some people who know us from back then think we are And I'm like, well, Blackstone
0: is is Vanguard. You invest in Vanguard and on the internet and BlackRock on the internet. Are they crowdfunders? No. One really interesting point on that. I think every corner of the alt space has undergone this arc of institutionalization. Wrote a blog post about this in 2020 where I was at Mosaic as well. Like you start by working with the individual investor. And there's a lot of merit to that. You want to open up access. Then as you grow and scale, you realize that there's a lot to do on the institutional side and you have to scale to size and scale. And then it arcs back around to the individual investor. You just figure out different and better ways to serve them, which you now do. You're enabling people to invest in real estate with a $10 minimum, but it's just a different structure than classic crowdfunding. So that whole arc that you've gone through, I think represents what think this whole industry, whether it's marketplace lending with Lending Club or Zopa, to the Mosaics, the fundraisers of the world, to the iCapitals Capitals of the world, etc., go through that arc of institutionalization, innovate, serve, and then come back to the individual investor. And ultimately, it benefits everyone, including the individual investor, because hopefully in the process, you've reduced costs, you've created technology infrastructure that enables you to then go to the individual in a much more cost effective way. Yeah. I love that. I hadn't thought about
1: it as interest-free because I was just we're over here doing our thing and realized everybody did that. Two thoughts around that. One is if you look at most real estate people, this is literally their arc too. They start by raising money from their friends or families and they go maybe raise money from wealth managers and they get to scale and they raise money from institutions. So much of tech is just the way things work. I think the mistake you can make and the danger Is that you let the institutions get too much power and then you don't want to sacrifice your values. I think the individual investor for us, our mission is to basically build a better financial system with technology. I've had lots of billion-dollar partners before I started Fundrise and I don't think that they should get better or different access. It, It puts you down a slippery slope of problems. And we're not going to do that. If I had the wrong board, probably it would make me, but we have the right governance. So anyways, I think that was a mistake some of the players have made who went down that arc as they lost their original innovation, their technology thinking as the institutional money, the power and the scale of billions of institutional money kind of warped
0: their model. I think that's a really important nuance in this space is balancing the needs of serving investors growing AUM, because AUM is often one of the North Stars for many of these platforms. So how do you balance those things while also figuring out how to serve customers, different customer segments, and innovate, which is a fascinating conversation. And it's really great to see the evolution that you've gone through at Fundrise because being one of the earliest, if not the earliest, you were really at the forefront of that. And then just to see the evolution of you And your business with the evolution of space has been fascinating.
1: Yeah. So what's my favorite investment? Obviously, my favorite investment is building Fundrise because I'm interested in building. It's not just about making money. What motivates me is actually trying to kind of make a dent in the universe, even a little one. I just need to do that. I worked for um, a multi, I think he must be a billionaire now, at a private equity fund. And he said, if you stay, you'll make $50 million, my first job. And you can invest across a lot of things. And I no, I want to build something. I want to make something. I want to do something. I don't just want to be a a passive investor. So that's what motivates me. And I think that's also why somebody offers me a lot of money.
0: It doesn't incentivize me the way they think it will. You're not the only person on this podcast to have said that their business, that they're building is their most favorite alternative investment. Yeah. It's so fun. It's so painfully hard. <laughs> but also, <so> f- <laughs> On that point, because you have a lot of really interesting thoughts around building businesses, what is the biggest learning you've had from starting Fundrise? I'm so frequently wrong
1: <laughs> that I have to really, really listen and also let other people lead. Not that I'm like a big ego, but I just learned over and over again that the way the world plays out so unexpected, it's just so unintuitive and that being wrong is it's a gift, actually. But it's just knowing that as I go into making decisions and how you basically don't end up being exposed because you think you're so
0: right. It's become core to how we make decisions. It's a fascinating point, I think, for anybody building a business out there. I think that's a great place to wrap, because then from business you've built innovated in a space, all the way to the learnings that you've had as a founder. Ben, thanks so much for coming on the Alt Goes Mainstream podcast. Pleasure to have you. Yeah, thanks a lot, Michael. Thanks for listening to this episode of Alt Goes Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites, and you can read more about alts at my substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com, and follow me on Twitter at at Michael Stidgemore and at Alt. Thanks a lot, and have a great day. We're going